0: Hi everyone, Lockie Mansell here. You've tuned into the Check and Flag Chat podcast where this week we're reviewing the high-tech oil's Bathurst 6-hour. It was a typically drama-filled race on the mountain with freezing cold conditions, an abundance of safety cars and a classic captivating finish, so there's plenty to unpack. Let's dive straight into it, your comprehensive Bathurst 6-hour review here on Check and Flag Chat. Joining me to review all of the ins and outs of a huge weekend at the Bathurst Six Hour, Dave Stilwell, who attended the event, albeit not in a driving capacity this year. He was part of the medical team. And Dave, let's face it, variable weather conditions, very Bathurst-esque over the course of the weekend with rain on Friday and very cold weather on both Saturday and Sunday. Fortunately, it didn't really detract too much from the on-track product except for a bit of a delay that we had due to some fog on Friday.
1: Yeah, It certainly seems that um, anyone who attended the Rolex Formula One Australian Grand Prix must have packed that weather from that four-day event into their bags and brought it with them to the event. Because uh, while at the Bathurst 12-hour in February, we normally get plenty of sunshine and uh, plenty of great, uh, great conditions, Uh, It was quite variable, although luckily when we got to the the big race on Sunday, uh, it was reasonably good conditions the whole way through.
0: And I have to say that the crowd, while it obviously wasn't as big as the Bathurst 12-hour or the 1,000, it certainly wasn't bad, especially when you consider that the weather conditions really weren't conducive to spectator comfort. It was pretty chilly out in the wind.
1: No, and I did observe right down at uh, the back of Garage 36 was the High Tech Oils merchandise trailer. Of course, High Tech Oils supports a number of different motorsport endeavours around the country, multiple different disciplines. And they were doing a roaring trade in jackets and beanies, uh, long-sleeve shirts and umbrellas all throughout the weekend. So uh, great to have the support of High Tech Oils for this event, but certainly I reckon they did quite well out of the trailer.
0: One thing I will say, though, is that anybody who invested in a high-tech oils beanie or or jacket will not be needing it for the next round of the high-tech oils Super Series because that is up at Hidden Valley in Darwin. So it'll be T-shirts and shorts weather up there. But as for the race itself, it was an absolute beauty. It was a classic Bathurst Endurance race where we had lots of strategic variation we didn't really know who was going to win or get much of an idea of how the results were going to play out until we got into the last couple of hours, once all the pit stops started to cycle through, and the, the certainly the, the outright contenders making sure that they had their pro driver in the car for the final sprint to the chequered flag. So from that respect, obviously we had a, a couple of late safety cars that really bunched up the field and gave us that that thrilling sprint to the finish right at the end, but uh, Yeah, in in terms of the entertainment and the drama and the climactic finish, it, it certainly delivered.
1: Absolutely. It's become something of a tradition for endurance racing spectacles at Bathurst to, regardless of whether you have a safety car or not, within that last five laps to have a race for the lead, the win, and indeed in the Bathurst Six hour we had multiple races, not just for outright positions, but in classes, you know over five and a half hours of racing, 12 safety car periods, and it comes down to the last three minutes of green flag running to have multiple classes decided. Bathurst delivers once again, and uh, I can't wait to hopefully be part of that. Maybe in 2024, aboard something with a little bit of poke and uh, hopefully have my own chance of uh, riding a bit of Bathurst history in the last three minutes of the race.
0: Yeah, we're certainly hoping to see the Stilwell family racing whatever sort of car that might be on the grid for next year's event. But we will cover off all of the class battles because, like you said, there were lots of interesting class contests. A couple of classes came right down to the last lap with changes for the lead and for the win on that final lap. We had one class that was not decided until after the race. But let's first of all talk about the outright contest for the win, and it was a well-deserved victory, for one of the two driver combinations in the race, the Simon Hodges and Jaden Ojeda entry. Interesting that they only chose to run two drivers because it does take away a bit of strategic flexibility, but the team managed it to perfection. And I have to say, an outstanding performance from both drivers. For Jaden Ojeda, I think that it was a really important race victory for his career because. When you look at it, he's been knocking on the door of trying to squeeze his way into a full-time main game supercars drive for a couple of years now, but he hasn't quite been able to crack it. So for him to take the win in a sprint to the chequered flag that involved a couple of full-time opponents, uh, full-time supercars driver opponents, it was a, a very fitting display, you would have to say, from from Jaden to to perhaps justify that he does indeed deserve a spot on the supercars grid as a full-time competitor.
1: Well, if nothing else, we saw the winners, the outright winners of last year's edition of the High Tech Oil's Bathurst 6-hour go on to fairly substantial career progression in the following season. Of course, Cameron Hill stepped up to be a full-time driver uh, for Matt Stone Racing in the Repco Supercars Championship. And of course, Tom Sargent's going and doing amazing things in Carrera Cup, uh, both here and overseas. So, Jaden, the Juice, has certainly stamped his uh, authority on the Australian motorsport landscape. I remember watching him uh, in the Super Three battles at Sandown at the Shannon's Nationals just before the um, just before the COVID pandemic hit, and there was so much energy in that uh, in that in that 2019 Super Three field. Uh, to then, you know, have it interrupted by COVID, and now to see him reap the rewards of all his hard work, uh, he's doing a great job in Super Two, and I think this will certainly uh, showcase to any potential team owners that he knows what to do in a high downforce, high grip car in a Super Two car, but also knows what to do in a car with very low downforce and very low grip, um, as we do see in production cars on semi-slick tyres, um, and certainly. Any laps you can do around Bathurst, you showcase that you've got mechanical sympathy, you can follow strategy, you can navigate through traffic. Uh, definitely a big uh, big thing to have on the resume.
0: There's no doubting that Jaden's got the talent and he has demonstrated that, like you said, in a variety of different cars, including open wheelers and tin tops. But let's not take anything away from Simon Hodges either because he held his own up against some professional drivers during his stints in the six-hour and he has been one of the front runners in the New South Wales Production Touring Car Championship. We've seen that, even though he's not a professional driver and he's one of those weekend warrior recreational racers, he's still done his time in junior categories like Formula Ford, where he drove the Anglo Motorsport. And him and his mechanic slash engineer Aaron Grech, they have worked very hard on developing that BMW M4 into a fast. A reliable package. So full credit to Simon for his contribution to the win as well.
1: Certainly, and as you mentioned before, when they only run two drivers, it means that at a minimum, Simon had to contribute two and a half hours of driving time because the maximum amount of driving time time available to any of our uh, two-car driver teams, the maximum driving time you can do is three and a half hours in total. So you know, contributing somewhere north of 40% of the effort is nothing to be sneezed at. Whereas when we compare that to some of the three uh, 3 driver teams, you know, the in theory, only one driver could be in there for less than half an hour if need be.
0: Exactly right. So it, it does take away a little bit of that strategic flexibility running only the two drivers, but It certainly didn't stop Simon and Jaden from taking the victory. Coming home in second place, that was the Russell family trio. We had the brothers, Drew and Aaron, being joined by their father, Wayne Russell, in what you would have to say, Dave, was an emotional result for those three drivers, getting second place overall. We'd seen that the Russell brothers have done their time in supercars, both main game and development series. And... Their father, Wayne, has been a veteran of the sport as well. We've seen that he competed in the Bathurst 1000 as a private here back in the 1990s, and all three of them have done their share of production car racing as well. So it it was a really nice moment to see the three of them sharing the podium together.
1: Absolutely. And, I mean, this just goes to show that for all intents and purposes, this is Australia's biggest club race meeting. Uh, You know, we have professional teams here, we have professional drivers, uh, we've got very high standard uh, presentation of vehicles. But at the end of the day, it's stories like these, it's families coming together, doing what they love, sharing the responsibility and the load amongst their friends, delegating team responsibilities, executing the strategy well. But at the end of the day, making it to the finish is in and of itself a massive reward. And certainly when you can share that with your siblings and your parents, uh, you know, definitely something to be celebrated.
0: Rounding out the podium was Anthony Sewell, Adam Burgess and Anton Di Pasquale. Good to see these guys finally getting a bit of luck going their way. We've seen that Anthony Sewell in particular, he, he's a very passionate supporter of motorsport in multiple categories, including production sports cars and, and obviously the New South Wales Production Touring Car Championship. We've seen that he's run in a number of the 300k endurance races at Wakefield Park. Winton and Sydney Motorsport Park over the years. He, Adam and Anton, they had some mechanical dramas at the 6-hour last year. At the Sydney 300 last year, Anthony and Adam looked like they were going to win the race only for a late drive-through penalty to take them out of contention. So I caught up with Anthony after the 6-hour on Sunday night and he was stoked to be up on the podium. He, He said that everything had finally gone according to plan for him and his team.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I can remember watching that car in the early stages of last year's race and just feeling my heart sink as their mechanical gremlins crept into that car and even some of the other BMWs in the field. Uh, I've raced against uh, Anthony and Adam in New South Wales production sports cars. Um, Adam's got a lot of history aboard genetas and things like that. Uh, Anthony of, with his uh, lot- Lotuses, Tie. Uh, and, of course, running uh, the BMW M4 recently. Uh, Massively impressive job by this team. Uh, You know, made the right call, you would say, to bring in the professional and Anton Di Pasquale Um, and certainly, you know, a fitting reward to that team. Um, You know, did it on merit, ran strong all day and then uh, got there in the end across the line uh, to finish officially P3. There
0: are a couple of other cars that were in contention for an outright podium or even a win heading into that last hour. So the car that was both of our tips to win the race, which was Barry Clinton, Tim Lay and Will Davison, they had a a flat tyre that put them well back outside the top 10 heading into that last hour. And obviously from there it was difficult for them to recover the lost track position. But even if they'd still been in the lead pack, Dave, I'm not quite sure that they had the outright pace of the, the teams that finished on the podium.
1: Well, that was certainly something that I saw. I mean, the, the Ojeda Hodges car went off strategy quite early in that uh, they, as, almost as soon as the compulsory pit stop window opened, 30 minutes into the event, they made a green flag pit stop. Uh, now, that seemed a little bit unusual, only for you know a few laps later for the safety car to come out. And then they cycled forward through that pit stop cycle and had track position and the same number of stops in hand. Um, when we had that red flag moment in the middle of the race, uh, teams were permitted to basically do almost anything they wanted to the cars. They were not permitted to refuel, and they were not permitted to make a driver change. Uh, therefore, wasn't a compulsory pit stop. A number of teams did elect to change tyres because you don't have to change tyres in a compulsory pit stop. Um, however, some teams were saying, and I think you'd probably say the the Linton car, probably the Linton, Lay and Davison car fell into this. Those teams that did change tyres in that sort of middle section of the race um, found that putting new tyres on didn't make the car faster and you have spent all the afternoon basically bleeding pressure out of the tyres, making sure that they're when they come in straight off the track and they're massively hot from a, a, a stint, you know exactly what your hot pressure is. You can dial it in just the way you like. And then when you throw a different set of tyres on the car, be it right-side tyres, rear tyres, or all four, you then have to reset the equation because you're starting with a with a cold pressure you're not too familiar with. Um, Will and Beric and Tim, definitely very experienced campaigners. Um, I did see them do that stop. I thought, that's unusual. Maybe they hadn't done all their CPSs uh, by the time we got back racing again. Um, but certainly it does raise the question... As you know, Lachlan, there's the segment of the rules in the, in the bass's 12-hour handbook which says that at any safety car restart, cars that are two or more laps down on the leader must transit the pit lane at the restart uh, in order to make sure that the, the restart is conducted fairly and that all the cars that are on the lead lap or only one lap down are basically in a queue. And then, they have, uh, then there's an addition to that which is in the last hour of a race, any car that's one or more laps down has to you know, cycle through the pit lane on a restart. And although we've got you know, multiple classes, many different races within a race operating at once, I just wonder if Will might have had a bit more of a chance if there weren't so many lapped cars and different class cars in between he and the cars he was racing. He was still on the same lap as them, but buried in the pack on the restart. I saw one of them towards the end of the race where, you know, the two lead cars basically sprinted away from the third car in the queue, which was a Toyota 86, I think. So even by the time, you know, the the 3rd pl- place car in the queue got across the line, the first two cars had opened up a five- or six-second gap already, hmm. you know. And, you know, that is the sort of swings and roundabouts moment that we have in production car racing. You know, we don't balance uh, – we don't apply a BOP across the cars. You know, we don't adjust – um, you know, boost levels and um, and ride heights and 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 weights and restrictor sizes or anything like that. You know, the cars are what they are and they have their inherent strengths and weaknesses. Um, but that being said, it's this battle between is it sporting, is it entertainment? You know, each Bathurst event has its own particular, you know, rules that, that, that lean to one way or the other. And I just think this is probably be something that will be taken on board by the event organisers. Um, as something that they consider going forward.
0: Yeah, I I do think for the six hour, because of the target audience, and it's very much a competitive-focused event. So of all the Bathurst Enduros, you probably have to have the pendulum swinging more towards the the pure sporting contest side of the equation rather than so much the, the entertainment side of the equation. And you would have to say as well that out of... The three major endurance races that we have at Bathurst, so the 1,000s, the twelve hour, and the six hour. The six hour is the one where the the classes ha- have got their own significance the most out of those three events. So it's uh, of all those races, it's definitely the one. Well, there, obviously there are no classes in in the one thousand, but I think even more so than the twelve hour, classes take on their own special significance in the six hour.
1: And that's certainly what we're celebrating this evening as we record this episode of Checkered Flag Chat. You know, we we were just remarking on the way that the results are presented on the Natsoft racing database. You know, there is no outright, you know, listing in the official records now. It's broken up into each of the eight classes.
0: So we will get to the classes very shortly. Just a couple of other cars that I want to touch on in the outright Class X contest, though. So the other cars that were lurking around the podium were the two GWR Australia-run BMWs, the M2 competition of Ben Cavage Michael Cavage and Thomas Randall, and also the M3 for Garth Walden, Michael Alden, Tyler Everingham. So for the Caviches and Thomas Randall, they were in the hunt heading into the last in. Thomas Randall was certainly just as quick as the race leaders in terms of his lap speed, but and it's a problem that we see often at Bathurst. The car was not quick in the areas that it needed to be for him to be able to make the overtaking manoeuvres to work his way onto the podium. So it was very quick over the top of the mountain, but it didn't have the straight line speed of the M3s and M4s that he was battling against going up and down the mountain.
1: Well, certainly we did allude to that in our preview podcast. Uh, One of the things that raised the ire of some of the M3 and M4 competitors in last year's event was that the M2 competition was competing under a temporary vehicle recognition document. And at the time, the maximum boost level that was submitted for an M2 competition was the same as an M3 or M4 competition now being you know somewhat of a bmw aficionado through my family links i can tell you that while those cars share a number of engine components what they don't share in their standard configuration is the same boost level the m2 is positioned slightly further down the 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 price scale compared to the m3 and the m4 and correspondingly it has a slightly reduced level of performance compared to an m3 or m4 competition In the off-season, there were a number of changes to a lot of vehicle recognition documents, including the M2 competition, where it was set that the maximum boost level uh, was several percentage points of a bar lower than an M3 or an M4 competition. Respecting the fact that the M2 competition is also a smaller car, shorter wheelbase, but runs the same size tyre and the same size brakes, so there needed to be a little bit of differentiation between the cars. As a result of that, as we see with Tom Randall on board, very quick across the top of the mountain, definitely have the measure of the other cars, but not quite as fast in a straight line as we would expect with a car running a few decimal points of a bar less compared to the outright competition in the M3 and M4.
0: So moving forward, do you think that that means that people probably will continue with the M3s and M4s rather than gravitating towards the M2s? I'm
1: suspecting that it's far more likely we'll see people looking at building the new G-series, the G80 M3 and the G82 M4, because that moves from the S55 architecture engine to the all-new S58 architecture engine. Um, there, there are BMW models that are underneath that $150,000 price cap. They do have manual transmissions, um, whereas the the previous gen cars, the F chassis cars, which of course what have won the race the last several years, those run a a um, seven-speed dual-clutch transmission. Uh, The the later model cars running a traditional torque converter automatic transmission, so unlikely to be used uh, without a third pedal going forward. Um, A lot of those cars now finding their way into the marketplace, a few of them finding their way into auction sites as repairable or statutory write-offs, which is one of the main sources uh, for vehicles for, for, for circuit racing where they're no longer legally permitted to drive on public roads. So I certainly hope that, uh, you know, we do see, you know, some more variety in Class X. You know, that's one of the things that's fired up on the internet fan pages in the last couple of days. Uh, maybe we'll see, you know, an, uh, an Alfa Romeo Giulia uh, Quadrifoglio. Maybe we'll see, you know, a few more of the fast Audis turn up. Uh, but again, it, BMW certainly puts together a very potent package and it's hard to see anyone, you know, showing up and, and beating those cars without a huge degree of development behind it.
0: And the other car that was in outright contention was indeed another BMW, the M3, as mentioned from Walden, Old Everingham. It was in the mix. They lost some time with a gearbox issue. They had to come into the pits and reset the gearbox. They fought back into contention and actually crossed the finish line in third position, only to then be penalised post-race for passing under yellow flags, which put them back to two. Fifth. All right, let's talk about some of the other classes in the race. So Class A1 for so long, it looks like the Ram Motorsport team were going to get their hat-trick of Class A1 victories with Mike Sheargold, Brett Hobson and Dylan O'Keefe qualifying on pole, running inside the top 10 outright and leading the class for most of the day. But a turbo boost problem for the Mercedes A45 in the last 20 minutes, saw them relegate. It's a second in class by the Mitsubishi Evo 10 of Cameron Creek and Dean Campbell, which means that it's two years in a row that Cameron Hill has had some success at the Bathurst 6-hour. Last year, of course, outright race winner. This year, Class A1 winner, not as the driver though, but as the team manager for that car.
1: Definitely, and I'm happy to you know, eat my hat on that one where I thought that the Evos might be a bit too long in the tooth. Um, Certainly the Evo 10, a very well-developed package, and certainly from a reliability perspective, they needed to be there at the end uh, with the boost going the right way. Interestingly, the overall fastest lap times for those cars, uh, within half a tenth of a second, a 2 minute 30.04 for the A45 of Sheargold, O'Keefe and Hobson, and a 2.30, uh, 0.095 uh, for the evo 10 of campbell and crick so again happy to eat my uh, eat my words on that one uh but certainly you know to have two cars very close to each other separated by uh, less than one and a half seconds across the control line after six hours of racing again bathurst continues to deliver on all of these amazing stories <laughs>
0: I was really impressed with Cameron Crick's performance. He wasn't as fast as I okay keep throughout practice and qualifying, but in the race, he, he certainly showed that he had pretty much the same level of speed as demonstrated by the fastest lap times, and he just he kept building up to it across the weekend, and as far as Evo 10s go, yes, they are getting a bit long in the tooth, but that car is definitely one of the better examples of the Evo 10 because it's one of the Team Mitsubishi Rally Art cars built by Alan Heafy. So I think that's one of the big parts of why it ran so faultlessly throughout the event.
1: But speaking of A1, if we look look to the third-place car in class, which, of course, was the Harding Performance Golf R of Usul, Solterian Sarkis... The fastest lap that car did all day was over four and a half seconds slower than the cars that finished first and second in class. And yet, with grit, good pit strategy, and staying out of trouble, they finished on the lead lap, 112 laps completed, admittedly further down the train at the end. Uh, So they were a further uh, 24 seconds behind, Uh, so right at the end of of the train coming across the line. But in, in order to achieve a result like that, you have to run flawlessly. Uh, I, Again, I'll eat my words on that one. I wasn't so sure that the Golf uh, or the VAG Group products were going to be uh, successful in that regard. Massively impressive performance. and uh, But certainly, if they're going to be competitive going forward, they're going to have to do something about that four-odd four second lap deficit uh, in order to be competitive with the AMGs and the
0: Evos. Yeah, like you say, good strategy and uh, exemplary driving from all three drivers contributing, contributing to a result for that car that exceeded everybody's expectations. Class A2, this was an exciting one, one of the classes that got decided on the last lap, not just the last lap, the last corner, because coming out of Murray's corner on the final lap, Ryder Quinn went around the outside of Ryan Kasher to take victory by the tiniest of margins with the two Mustangs pretty much side by side across the finish line. So it was Ryder Quinn teaming up with his grandfather, Tony Quinn, and Bathurst celebrity, Grant Denyer who emerged victorious in that class.
1: To have a six-hour race separated by a tenth of a second and Again, we were very impressed by the Century 21 Hazelbrook car of Dels McCasher, and Gray. Um, you know, this is a Mustang GT, not a Mac 1, so it doesn't have the trick gearbox in it. Um, it doesn't have the, uh, the extra special features, but, you know, massively impressed by their performance in qualifying. I think it was seventh or eighth outright in qualifying uh, on the Saturday afternoon. And then to have them, you know, power away at the start of the race, and then have that local legends car just sneak through at the end. Uh, Ryder Quinn certainly showcasing his talent and sticking his hand up for future drives in other categories. You know he was at maybe he learned a thing or two when he was uh, aboard that uh, that Carrera Cup car at the AGP just a few days before he turned up at Mount Panorama.
0: Class B one. Now this was a class that got decided. After the race, so the car that crossed the finish line in first position was the Scott Turner Rob Rubis Jordan Cox BMW, but that car was disqualified post-race for a technical infringement. Now, Dave, I believe that that was related to running a higher than permitted level of turbo boost, which was detected by the technical department after the race, which handed a victory in Class B1 to a local Bathurst team, Harrison and Grant Inwood teaming up with Tim Collins Brazer in a Subaru WRX. Uh, again, this was
1: one that we predicted uh, in the sense of um, right up until the uh, about an hour after the race, our prediction for Jordan Cox uh, taking out a Class win at Bathurst was correct. Unfortunately, for those that were following the coverage of the event, uh, the team was disqualified from qualifying uh, for a technical infringement—a uh, boost irregularity—and try as they might, from an electrical perspective, with a tuner there, uh, trying to keep the boost so that the turbo pressure that builds up in the intake system um, is limited by regulation. It's all in the uh, the 3E uh, Motorsport Australia production car regulations and in the appendixes. Uh, to the six-hour regulations. There was a change in the last year in terms of how the boost is monitored, uh, in terms of the window that you can exceed the boost pressure, recognising that there are spikes every now and again. Um, I caught up with Jordan at the Ridges after the event, uh, looking quite dejected, Uh, try as they might after qualifying, they just couldn't get the car to to operate the way it, uh, it, it was required to under the regulations. Uh, they raced hard. Unfortunately, their boost spikes were too long in duration, and unfortunately, the minimum uh, the minimum penalty for a breach of the technical regulations is disqualification from the event. Um, certainly, if nothing else, he showcased why he's such a talent. You know, ran hard all day, uh, put on some amazing overtaking moves in a car that is, in and of itself, is is not an outright contender. But don't tell Jordan Cox that when he gets behind the wheel. <laughs> uh, you know, certainly showcasing that he's not just a talent in front-wheel drive cars. Uh, he is pretty good in rear-wheel drive cars as well. So I think he'll be one of those people that people that uh, some of the teams that were only running two drivers of the non-professional variety, he might be on their shopping list. Uh, he'll probably just want to make sure that the car he's in fully complies with all the regulations. Maybe we'll see him behind the wheel of a normally aspirated car without any of these uh, tricky turbochargers involved.
0: So that left, as I said, the inwards along with Tim, Colin, to take victory in the Subaru WRX, one of the older cars in the field. So well done to the the Bathurst guys for, for taking what was a well-deserved victory in that class ahead of the all-female team of Carly Buccini, Alexandra Best and Courtney Prince. It was a non-finish for Gary Minnell, Matt Charter, and Matt Harris in the BMW 335i that we talked about last week, another car that has had a long and distinguished history at Mount Panorama, but unfortunately a mechanical problem. After four, laps put that car out of the race. In Class B2, we only had a couple of cars within that class, and in the end, Dave, only one finisher, and that was the Brent Edwards, Cody McKay, Brad McDonald, VF Commodore, SSV, which took out the class win after the other Commodore in the class blew an engine at the chase with Michael Ferns at the wheel, which caused quite a lengthy red flag while some oil on the track in the chase was cleaned up. But uh, although it's easy to say that it was a class win by default because only – one of the cars in the class finished the race. Still, a very good effort from Brent Edwards, Cody McKay, and Bradley McDonald because it was a trouble free run. And uh, they were also reasonably fast in terms of their lap times, and they only finished three laps behind the outright race winners.
1: Finish first. First, you must finish. I, uh, I caught a glimpse of this team celebrating with their car parked uh, just adjacent to one of the big screens in the paddock after the end of the race. They didn't care that they were effectively the only finisher in class it was massively rewarding to see a team celebrate success just by making it to the end and it showcases the kind of results you can have when you just focus on your own race not getting involved in anyone else's mishaps looking after the car you know a bit like the the, the spirit of target tasmania has been over the years Yes, there's the people competing for Outright, but just making it to the finish after three days of arduous work uh, is a reward in and of itself. Got to spray some champagne, got to take home some silverware, and uh, certainly you know, a little bit of pedigree for that car going forward.
0: Now, Class C. What a story in this class with the lead changing multiple times in the closing stages of the race. So... The car that dominated the class right throughout the weekend was the Jake Camilleri and Scott Nicholas Mazda 3. They looked like they were on for a decisive class victory, only for the car to grind to a halt under safety car conditions on the run up to the cutting. That handed the lead to Brock Giblin and Nicholas McLeod in an Astra. But then they had a drive shaft issue and they had to come into the pits. So then it was the Chris Holt. David Ling and Darren Jenkins' Astra that took the lead, but it slowed up dramatically on the last lap, which allowed the Gibble and McLeod car to take the win after an outstanding effort to change the drive shaft in the garage and get back out onto the track. So drama of plenty in Class C and another class in which the lead changed on the very last lap.
1: And that's, of course, ignoring... Uh, We're not ignoring the fact that Car Team was actually issued with a pit lane drive-through penalty for a driving infringement on the number 48 Class A2 uh, Lexus RCF uh, that was being driven uh, by, I think, Keith Bensley at the time uh, at at McPhillamy. Uh, Whoever was behind the wheel of that car at the time came from a long way back with a move up the inside of that Lexus and they just made ever so slight contact, but it fired the Lexus at high speed into the wall. Was observed by the uh, race control at the time and judged to be a breach of the driving code of conduct. So to come back from a drive-through and a drive shaft replacement, uh, that's an incredible story. Uh, second in class on the, with one lap down on the on the leader, was of course the Hay, Ansell and Leroy AC Store CP Dental VW Scirocco. And uh, a great story for a friend of ours, uh, Aaron Zerifos, uh, joining Fitzgerald and Johnston aboard the Milk Lab and On Track Motorsport BMW 130i, finishing third in class uh, in the old Truckster. Again, uh, uh, one and a half seconds or so behind the VW and a lap down on the class leaders. So, so the On Track Motorsport was able to get a car to the finish. Uh, it turned out it was the normally aspirated 130i that made it there.
0: Those BMW 130 guys, they just truck around all day. So well done to uh, to the Johnson, Fitzgerald and Zerifos car there to, to pick up another class podium, the second time that they've been on the podium in Class C. Uh, class D was one class where it wasn't quite as exciting as the fin- at the finish and ended up being a pretty comprehensive win in that class by yet again. A Toyota 86 driven by Mitch Madron, the New Zealander, who we've seen doing some Formula Ford racing here in Australia, Murray Dowsett, and also Lachlan Bloxham, the Porsche Michelin Sprint Challenge and Toyota 86 Series competitor. They led that class pretty much all day.
1: And were did not look out of place in that race ever. Uh, regardless of whether they were overtaking people or being overtaken, the car was well-driven, stayed out of trouble, and to the fact that they only finished two laps down on the outright leaders in a car that's travelling, you know, some 10 to 12 seconds, a, or sorry, 9 to 10 seconds a lap slower on peak speed just goes to show that, you know, as much as it was all about performance, they got very lucky with a lot of the safety car deployments and not going a lap down uh, compared to some like of the other actually, cars
0: They actually stayed on the lane lap fast. For- ages i think it was it would have been h- half the race or more that they stayed on the lead lap so that in itself was an incredible effort obviously helps by safety cars but still for a car that's uh so far off the pace of the outright cars to stay on the lead lap for so long just shows that they were absolutely nailing their strategic calls and Obviously, driving-wise, their their performances behind the wheel were exemplary. The final class in the race, Class A, only the two classes, uh, I'm sorry, only the two cars in the class, but they put on a ripper battle for us. And in the end, after six hours of racing, just over two seconds separating the two Mazda 3s with, in the end, the Andrew Jackman, Mark Torbett's Cameron Bellicar, the trio of Porsche 944 races getting a class win ahead of the raceway track time Phil Alexander run machine.
1: And, of course, they came from a lap down through the course of the race to to get that. And, unfortunately, during that red flag period, they were one of four cars caught in pit lane when the red flag came out. And there was a little bit of confusion as to whether those cars were going to be released from pit exit, or whether they'd have to uh, wait for the cars to pass. So it's an interesting quirk of the circuit race standing regulations. The normal procedure is that the, the cars actually stack up on the grid with the pit exit closed. It's just that in this instance, the cars were brought into pit lane so they could be worked on more effectively. Unfortunately, whether the cars are parked in pit lane or on the grid, they are the ones, all the cars in the safety car train, they are the ones that are released first prior to any cars that were in the pits being released from pit exit. So uh, they did effectively lose a lap uh, through the course of that uh, that, that mid-race red flag. Um, again, sometimes you're the windscreen, sometimes you're the bug. Uh, and the fact that they overcame that, again, stayed out of trouble but pushed hard all throughout that last half of the race to overcome that deficit, got lucky with the multiple safety cars we had towards the end bunching them back up and then we're able to uh, execute that maneuver in the dying stages of the race and bring it home again still still a bit of a shame for me that we only had two cars in this class because regardless of whether you're doing a 2 minute 29 or a 2 minute 49 at Bathurst uh, some of the stories that come out of the particularly the slower classes where you've got to stay on your toes you've got to make sure you make no mistakes and you you carry as much corner speed as you can whilst letting through rocket ship BMWs, Holdens and Mustangs through, Um, you know, they're incredible stories. So really good to see um, while they were a bit down uh, after that red flag period and going the lap down, great that they were able to turn it around with some champagne at the end of the day.
0: And I do want to get your thoughts on red flag protocols. We'll get to that shortly. Before we do, let's talk about some of the most high-profile casualties from the race. So in our preview podcast last week, Dave, you suggested that you had some question marks over the 10-speed automatic gearbox in the Mustang of George Medici, Marcus Ambrose, and Tim Brook, and so what proves to be the case, the car retiring from the race while in a pretty good position due to a gearbox failure.
1: Yeah, it's... (sighs) It's, it's rough. Everything was looking good for them in their testing at Queensland Raceway beforehand uh, through practice and qualifying. They had a number of people from both the Ford side of things and from Gary Rogers Motorsport helping them you know, run and build the car. The build level of the car looks very professional, very neat and tidy. Um, you know, Great job by everyone from there at Dandenong at Gary Rogers Motorsport and putting the car together. Um, absolutely gutted for for George and Marcus and and, and of course their co-driver um, that they weren't able to showcase that the car when it was running looked really strong um, and really interesting to hear it even on the on the pit straight which is only about five five hundred meters long uh, the multiple gear changes you could hear as the car you know pulled out of Murray's corner all the way to Hell Corner and then going back down through the gears uh, for that for the for the left hand ninety degree corner as opposed to say the the manual cars where you'd hear them make one or two gear changes and then jump the gate back down a gear or two for the run up mountain straight um certainly will have raised some eyebrows with to to the potential of running an automatic transmission car uh and certainly if they can. Do some work on the reliability, maybe go back and have a chat with some of the Ford performance engineers. Uh, that is a gearbox that they use in a couple of other applications with very big horsepower engines in front of it. Uh, maybe there is something they can tap into in the in the Ford catalogue in terms of, you know, some, some calibration or things like that.
0: One of the other high-profile retirements was the Granton Ian Sherrod BMW M4, which was out with a broken rear subframe. Again, while running in a pretty competitive position, we also had the Dwayne West, Tony Del Bujo, HSV GTS beached in the gravel at the chase on the final lap. Also, some, some pretty significant crashes for Brianna Wilson in the Subaru WRX that she was sharing with Dimitri Agathos. And also, late crashes for Paul Loya Kono in the Mitsubishi Evo 10 and Colby Cowham in the Mustang and those last two crashes created the safety car that produced the one-lap dash to the chequered flag. But the biggest incident in terms of its effect on the race was the blown engine for the Michael Ferns Commodore in the chase, which we saw a lot of oil dropped right in the braking zone at the chase and some cars went spearing off on that oil. Ultimately, the officials decided that it was going to be too big a job to clean up that oil, under safety car conditions. So they red flagged the race. All of the cars came into the pits and we had pretty much all of the teams working on their cars in the fast lane of pit lane during that red flag stoppage. Now, I want to get your thoughts on red flag protocols and procedures, Dave, because I'll be brutally honest, I'm not a fan of this business of teams being allowed to work on their cars under a red flag. We see it in Formula One as well. We've seen it in supercars, but my personal opinion is that a red flag is a suspension of the race. The team should not be allowed to touch their cars because they're basically getting the opportunity to do work on their cars that they would not be able to do if the race hadn't been suspended. It's certainly
1: above my pay grade. I'd wager it's above your pay grade. These are decisions that are made by people, um, you know, with years of experience in motorsport. While I don't disagree with you that you have a valid point of contention, um, it comes back to this, you know, entertainment versus sporting debate. One could argue that if you, you know, didn't allow the teams to work on their cars while they're parked, you know, in in a red flag situation, effectively they could possibly develop an issue from having been sat still for a period of time. In Formula One they have to allow it because the the temperature window the cars operate in is so narrow, you know, that they need to be filled full of dry ice to keep everything cold when they don't have the airflow going through. But then they've got to have hot, you know, heaters on the tyres because the tyres have to operate in a very narrow
0: temperature window. Yeah. These are production cars, Dave. (laughs) Now, if you go back to the Bathurst 12-hour in 2010, you'll remember that there was a red flag because a tree had fallen across the racetrack on the exit of Forest Elbow. And on that occasion, they couldn't bring the cars back into pit lane because most of the field was stopped stuck at Mount Panorama up the top of the mountain because they couldn't get down because there was a tree blocking their way and on that occasion everybody stopped, turned the engines off in their cars at the top of the mountain once the tree had been chopped up and removed from the track everybody got back in the cars, started the engines and off they went again. There were no mechanical problems or cars that struggled to get going again.
1: Maybe we should have uh, mandated the only thing that could be done with the cars was someone could approach with a bottle of sports drink and a couple of orange slices. Yeah, you know, Unfortunately, it is the reality of you know, modern motorsport in Australia that teams are permitted to work on cars during the breaks, although none of the work that they did got counted as a compulsory pit stop because they weren't permitted to refuel and they weren't permitted to change drivers. So two of the key things that, that you can take care of at a compulsory pit stop.
0: The other thing that was interesting is that the field were all stopped in the fast lane of pit lane in the order that they were in behind the safety car. So the team that I was involved with over the weekend, which was GWR Australia, they were very fortunate that two of their three cars came to stop pretty much directly opposite their pit garages, but other teams weren't so lucky and we had mechanics and pit crew members having to run in some cases, two thirds or three quarters of the length of pit lane to get to where their cars were.
1: It is what it is. Uh, the regulation, the circuit race standing regulations from Motorsport Australia, which are derived from the FIA. Uh, the normal procedure is you would actually park all the cars out on the grid, with the uh, lead car behind the safety car taking up the position in uh, first spot on the grid, with all the cars forming up in a line behind them. Now. That's not really practical at, at 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 Mount Panorama because of the nature of the of the circuit, and you wouldn't fit all the cars in in one line uh, in that t- situation. Uh, so parking them all on the grid meant that they could be kept safe. You've also got to consider that uh, the reason that they red flag um, condition for conditions such as this is it requires the use of vehicles which are not specifically motorsport prepared. So if we have a fire on the circuit, we have a driver that needs medical attention, uh, we need a car that just needs to be recovered on a flat tow truck uh, or a lift tow truck, that's handled by Motorsport Australia volunteer officials. So they're trained to operate in a motorsport environment and they're capable of operating when a safety car has the field under control. When you have to bring in external resources, uh, so the street sweepers, and things like that, that's outside the scope of practice for, uh, for their operation. So they can't carry out their very important work when there are cars still circulating. Because even though the risk of there being an incident is quite low, it's not a risk that anyone wants to take in the modern environment. So red flagging the race uh, or suspending the race was the right call to make. Bring all the cars into the pit lane so they're clear of all the uh, the, the road surfaces that would be used. Uh, by vehicles accessing the circuit from turn 23, the access route uh, out to the outside world uh, or any of the other locations that um, external resources are deployed from. Uh, it meant that we got the, the, the situation resolved far quicker than we could have if we just had soaker and brooms and, and people going at it with leaf blowers. Uh, so right call was made. Um, you know, it, it did take out a chunk of the race. But I would imagine we would have spent possibly twice as long um, under a safety car trying to resolve that. And then you've got people making pit stops and people doing runners. It becomes very difficult to orchestrate. The risk level goes up substantially. So the right call was made by, by race control in that instance. You know, It minimised the effect on the race. Effectively, everyone had the same opportunity to do work on the cars, You know, be they cars that were already in pit lane at the time of the red flag, all cars that were brought into um, into the lane that might have, at that point, you know, been desperate to fill fuel in, or they might have developed a puncture under safety car. So, all of these kinds of things need to be factored into the decision making that's made. Um, you know, and it's it's the least worst option, if if you will.
0: Yeah, I don't disagree with bringing out the red flag in the first place. The thing that I I do have a bit of an issue with is the amount of work that's allowed to be done on the cars under red flag conditions. But it, it seems to be prevalent in all levels of motorsport, obviously in Formula 1, the fact that teams are allowed to change tyres under red flag conditions. It's been a rule for forever pretty much, but it, it remains quite unpopular with a lot of people, not just myself. But anyway, we'll, we'll let those debates continue at a higher level. In terms of eligibility of cars for the race, and Dave, you already spoke before about some of the newer BMWs that we might see starting to find their way into production car racing in about the 6-hour and other production car events in Australia, but there had been a bit of speculation that GT4 cars were going to be allowed into the Bathurst 6-hour from next year and beyond because of the fact that we've started to see them racing alongside cars in the Australian production car series. But... Interesting to see that Liam Kirkpatrick from ARG, the event organisers of the Bath of Six Hour, he has moved to quell that speculation. There was an interview that came out with Simon Chapman on the Wide World of Sports website the other day where Liam Kirkpatrick basically said that with the number of entries that they're getting for the Bath of Six Hour, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So he has moved to allay fears of some people within the production car community, a lot of people within the production car community about GC4 cars being allowed into the Bathurst 6-hour. Dave, what are your thoughts about GC4 cars and the Bathurst 6-hour? I personally don't think the 6-hour needs GC4 cars given the success of the format and the eligibility the way it is.
1: I think it was a reasonably successful debut for GT4 running as the headline. Of its own races. They combined it, of course, with the non championship sprint races for the Australian production car series for cars that either weren't set up to go into the six hour, didn't get an entry, or weren't quite ready to, to make that step yet. What it certainly showcased, uh, particularly for the long periods of time that, that the Sharon M4 was having a really solid run with the gt 4 cars, was just how competitive and well built the GD4 cars are because they could just take the punishment and run it. Now, these are cars that normally run on much larger height, uh, slick, full slick racing tyres. So to see them running around on semi-slick tyres in the GT4 slash prod car races was quite interesting to see how they'll handle. I didn't get a chance to chat to any of the drivers to see you know, what their experience was like uh, and how the cars compared to not running on slicks. Uh, but certainly it showcased that you know these are packages which are when you compare the the investment, substantial investment you've got to make into a Class X car with the fuel system and the engine mapping and the suspension and the brakes, all of that stuff's already been picked out on a GT4 car. Um, the advantage, of course, with a GT4 car from an investment perspective, is that you can't, you don't can't just use it for one series in one country. It's a global commodity. There's resale potential both locally. Uh, in Australia and New Zealand, but also internationally into the GT4 classes, be they in endurance class, in, in endurance racing like the 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 24 Hour uh, International Series, um, the Nurburgring Langstrecken Series, the, the VLN, um, or uh, or whether it's into some of the sprint championships that uh, that run, uh, you know, in the British GT, uh, French GT, Belgian things like that. Um, mm, really appreciate that clarification from Liam coming out it does provide some some uh, some confidence going forward to the the people that have made the investment in the class x cars but certainly it showcases that this is these are cars that should get a chance to 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 have their own racing and headline their own racing uh, acts but certainly when you compare the lap times the cars do compared to GT3 machinery you can appreciate why a lot of there's been a lot of reluctance for competitors to share the track uh, with GT3 cars, particularly driven by you know well experienced pros or very uh, very highly competent amateur drivers, um, where the, sp- the, the closing rate is so high, particularly uh, through some of the twisty sections where the GT3 cars possess such massive aerodynamic downforce compared to the little front splitter and the little rear wing that we see on the GT4 cars. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in this space. Um, certainly. You know, quite a number of the cars that were running at the front of the Bathurst 6-hour, uh, there are GT4 equivalents of. You know, there's a GT4 uh, F-series BMW. There's a GT4 of the new G82 M4. Uh, there's a Chevrolet Camaro GT4 car. There's a uh, an S550 uh, Mustang GT4. There'll be a new S650 Mustang GT4. It's being developed by Multimatic at the moment. Uh, you know, there's French GT4 cars, British GT4 cars, German GT4 cars, uh, Japanese GT4 cars. The new Toyota Supra, there's a GT4, and uh, our uh, our friend of the show Scott uh, Scott Andrews has been having a run in one of those in the US. So there's plenty of manufacturer-built GT, you know, production-based GT car uh, availability on the marketplace. And these are cars which come with a maintenance schedule, with a spare parts availability. Um, There's a lot less custom engineering involved. All the R&D and the the endurance testing has been done by the manufacturers. So you just buy the car, buy a pack of bits, follow the instructions, and you're highly likely to have a great weekend.
0: It was interesting to see some of the GT4 cars racing against the production cars in those non-championship races that you talked about. And in particular, comparing the strengths and weaknesses of the cars. I think that, as expected, the GT4 cars were quite quick over the top of the mountain because they have a bit more aero. But in terms of straight-line performance, the BMW M4, particularly the the Sharon car, was was a bit quicker than the GT4 cars, particularly going up mountain straight.
1: So that's where the difference in how the cars are built and how the eligibility uh, regulations work. So other than the maximum boost limit that's set by the 3E regulations and the recognition document for the M3 and the M4, there's no other uh, engine tuning uh, restriction. Teams are free to make their own exhaust from the turbo back. Uh, They're free to do their own um, ignition timing, uh, their own turbo boost mapping. Um, They can upgrade their fuel systems. While the internals of the engine are much the same, Uh, how they tune it and what power level they run, they're unrestricted. Whereas a GT4 car uh, will run, you know, at a certain power limit that's set by the organizers for certain events. So for instance, the, uh, the GT4 Mercedes that we saw Carl Beck driving, that's running a four litre twin turbo V8. Now that car in road car form makes well over 500 horsepower, but, in GT4 configuration, it's actually detuned to somewhere in the mid-450s, 460s uh, in order to keep it competitive with other cars in the GT4 class. So you've got a car that's running below its power potential in accordance with the BOP that's set by the Stéphane Rattel organization versus the BMW M4 of the Sherons, which is trying to run at the maximum peak of its potential at all times. And so that's where we saw the difference in the straight line handling of the uh, of the M4, rocket ship in a straight line. But come to the braking, you know, the motorsport ABS systems that are on board the GT4 cars, very capable. The traction control system is very capable. Um, and, again, they're running wider tyres, so 11-inch wheels on the GT4 cars as opposed to 9s and 10s, 9- and 10-inch wide wheels on the, GT- on the M4s. Now, uh, they've also got – it's not a lot – but it's just enough difference in the aerodynamics with the slight extension of the front splitter and the front undertray and the small rear wing on the uh, on the boot lid of the GT4 cars is just enough to provide that little bit of extra you know, confidence and sure-footedness across the top of the mountain. Don't get me wrong. These cars are still quite heavy. They're running somewhere 14 to 1,500 kilos racing weight. So they're no lightweights compared to the GT3 cars that they would normally be running against. But compared to a production car, if you look at the M3s and fours, they've got almost no aerodynamic aids on them whatsoever, and you know higher ride heights as well. Um, you know, not cars that are going to inspire a lot of confidence at high speed in the undulating terrain of the second sector of Mount Panorama. So, if nothing else, it was a great audition for the cars. Um, there is there's a substantial car park of gd 4 cars around the country. Interestingly, they've mm. they've they've often turned into the uh, the track day specials for the wealthy amateur. You know why would you bother you know hotting up your road car Porsche when Porsche makes a car that's built to be you know beaten senselessly on track relentlessly um, and all you've got to do is you know throw some tires at it and fill the thing full of fuel every few hours um certainly I hope that that entices the the, the, the customers uh, to come to this level of racing and go hey you don't have to run with the big massive you know million gt G3 cars you can run at a level that you're comfortable with and you'll find someone to race with. Uh, so kudos to, to ARG and to Carl Begg and the team at at, uh, at GT4 Australia, at Monochrome GT4 Australia for making that happen.
0: Yeah, you are right in that there are a lot of GT4 cars floating around in Australia and we've seen some like the M3 GT4 that ran at the Bathurst 12-hour back in 2019 with Cameron Hill and, and Dean Grant. I don't think that's been seen in any racing event since. And there's some Lotus's floating around and Janetta's and Porsche Cayman's. So like you say, hopefully now that they've got somewhere to run where they're not going to be sharing the track with GT3 cars and, and having to deal with that massive speed differential, hopefully we'll see more of them back out on the track. I know that there's certainly people out there who want to see gt4 succeeding as a category here in australia it's never really taken off here like it has in some other countries so it'll be interesting to see if it can can grow in popularity now but uh, apart from the gt4 cars and the production cars we've also had support races for gt world challenge australia speaking of gt3 cars uh, some good entertainment in both races especially in in race two where we had Brad Schumacher and Jeff Emery having a great battle for the outright podium, which was ultimately resolved in favour of Bathurst boy Brad Schumacher. But um, just with the way that the race is playing out and the formats with the, the pro and the yam and the pit stops and the driver changes and different drivers being in cars at different times, I can't help but feel, Dave, that... The race is catered more for hardcore enthusiasts than casual fans. I know that there are some sections in the the motorsport community who say that we should have GC3 as the top level of motorsport here in Australia, but I just I don't see it. I'm, I'm sorry, but I just don't think it strikes enough of a chord with the casual enthusiasts to to be taking that position at the top of the tree here.
1: Well, these are incredible cars for you know the level of performance that they are able to extract from a production built race car. But at the end of the day, they're designed for non-professional amateur drivers. They're designed for endurance racing and they're designed to run in clean air. Uh, We saw with the DTM changing from its traditional, you know, standalone format of, uh, you know, class one touring car to GT3 with the demise of class one. Uh, GT3 cars don't actually run that well in a sprint format with all pro drivers beating the hell out of each other, particularly at some of the circuits that they go to. Um, You know, we're seeing, you know, we saw with the previous Gen 2 of Supercar and now with Gen 3, incredibly close racing, but they lean on each other. They bang wheels. You know, they bend fenders and guards, and uh, it's just not the kind of punishment a GT3 car is designed to take, and it's also not the... Uh, style of racing that the customer support racing organizations are set up to support, you know, they'd be chewing through, you know, $25,000 front splitters and $5,000 carbon, carbon guards. They'd be chewing through, you know, $1,000 wheel nuts with no abandon. Um, And if you think the debate about parity is difficult when you've got two cars that are effectively identical under the skin with some minor bodywork changes, have you got something to learn about BOP when it comes to complaining about parity? Because when you've got cars with different engine types, different profiles, different wings, different tire sizes, different frontal areas, different ride heights, different fuel tank sizes, it's a mess. And I would not wish that upon any category administrator. Um, I think that it was very encouraging to see a good return to form for Fanatec gt world challenge australia good support from both the amg end of town and audi uh great to see of course the ema motorsport porsche for yasser shaheen um unfortunately that car did get involved in a a bit of an accident unfortunately was able to get it back out again for the races we would like to see some more variety there are quite a number of you know relatively new and refreshed gt3 cars available from all the different manufacturers and a bit like we talked about, you know, the, the debut or the, the audition for GT4 running as a headline category. I think this was a really good solid start for Fanatec GT World Challenge Australia, powered by AWS. Uh, there's kudos to ARG. Got to make sure you get in all the plugs. Um, they They ran green flag effectively the whole way for both two races. No safety cars, no race interruptions. Which is somewhat unique for that category, as we've seen um, in in the last few years, they uh they they do tend to find the fence every now and again. Uh, so great uh, balancing between the different driver types, the the different. You know, we don't do BOP of drivers; we do a a staggered pit stop time based on you know driver performance. And and the fact that we had those battles come down to the wire uh, in the GT races with all those changes, I think speaks volumes about what we can expect going forward. Uh, with this category throughout the course of the year. Some invitational categories, great to see Jeff Taunton and some of the Mark cars in there. Um, Sonic Motor Racing Services with a a GT3 Cup car involved in Trophy as well. And as much as we love the V8 in the Mercedes-AMG GT, how awesome does a Ferrari 4.5-litre flat-plane crank engine spinning to 9,000 RPM sound in a Ferrari 458, that was just beautiful, beautiful noise going around uh, the Mount Panorama circuit.
0: Yeah, and that Ferrari in the hands of Stephen Coe, who we've previously seen racing in the Super 3 Series. For the record, it was Liam Talbot and Audi factory driver Max Hoffer who took out both races in the Pro-Am class. And in the Am class, Brad Schumacher driving solo, picking up a pair of Race victories. The other two support categories on the program were the XLs and the Pulsars. We had more than 60 XLs, but uh, despite the fact that all three races were interrupted by safety cars, it was Ryan Kasher who took victory in each race. And in the Pulsars, it was Josh Craig and Dan Smith who had a good battle at the front of the field with Craig winning two races and Smith winning one race. All right, time. For the high tech batteries, fully charged driver of the weekend, and uh, Dave, I'll start off with your choice for the driver of the weekend. Look, I've
1: I've probably not given this as much thought as you might have expected someone in my position to do. Uh, but when you look across the weekend, um, I think based on what happened on the Saturday. Um, being disqualified and having to start rear a grid, um, driving a car that he basically done little to no driving in beforehand. that's very different to almost everything he's driven so far to have such a strong performance and then to, you know, graciously accept disqualification on Sunday. Uh, I've got to give a big shout out to Jordan Cox. I mean, um, you know, out of his hands, the fact that the car was not compliant with the rules, but in every other aspect, put on an amazing show from the rear of grid to run effectively top 10 by the end. Um, just, you know, doesn't get to take home a shiny trophy, but I think it'll, you know, put the fire in the belly to come back next year and really showcase what his driving talent can do.
0: Interesting choice. Uh, and I like it because it's outside the square. So my choice for driver of the weekend is Ryan Kasher because Yes, he's done a bit of racing at a national level in the Toyota 86 series and he's been a consistent top 10 runner the last couple of seasons. But I feel like he exceeded everybody's expectations at the of 6-hour, particularly in qualifying in Class A2 in the Mustang, where he was one of the fastest drivers within that class. And then in the race as well, uh, you know, running inside the top 10 for a lot of it, Really, really uh, punched above his weight, I I felt, and and demonstrated or or really proved himself as a star of the future and somebody that we need to pay attention to, sharing that Mustang with Chris Delfsma and young Rylan Gray. was unlucky not to win the class. As we discussed, he got overtaken in the very last corner of the race, but I reckon Ryan Kasher is a name that we need to remember because I think we're going to be seeing some big things from him in the not-too-distant future.
1: Uh, definitely can't disagree with that choice. Um, I was quite staggered with where he put the car in qualifying, and then watching that car did not did not put a foot wrong in the early stage of the race. Ran on the lead lap the whole way through, and just really looked in contention. Um, you know, if there was something that happened to take out a couple more of the Class X runners, as we had seen some, some reliability issues creep in. On some of the M3 and M4 product in last year's race, they could have been on for an upset and an outright podium if things had gone sideways for some of those cars. Um, you know, a bit bit of a cruel twist uh, to be beaten at the last uh, at the last corner. But uh, I think that's a Bathurst finish that everyone will be talking about for some time.
0: So there we go. Our High Tech Oils Bathurst six-hour analysis is complete. Everything that you need to know about what unfolded in this year's edition of the production car, Enduro. Dave, thanks as always for your expert analysis. Well, thanks for having
1: me on Checkered Flag Chat, Lockie. And of course, a huge thanks once again to High Tech Oils for bringing us the 2023 edition of the Bathurst six-hour.
0: Always fun having a chat to Dave and discussing all things motorsport. Now, this year we're ramping up things with the Check and Flag Chat podcast with some exciting announcements coming up over the next few weeks, so stay tuned for those. Also, if you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode and also give Check and Flag Media a follow on our Facebook and Instagram pages. I'm Lockie Mansell. Thanks for listening.